once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. John the Baptist had a large following, but he was adamant that he was not the focus. The last thing he wanted was a group of followers making much of him. When his followers started following Jesus, he was happy, saying his joy was complete as he had to decrease and Jesus had to increase. Teaching team member Bob Cargo brings us this message entitled, Making Much of Jesus, which covers 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 through 10, and John 3, verses 27 to 30. Thank you for joining us today. You know, kids can be so uh, funny, especially little kids, four or five years of age or younger. doesn't matter what the topic is. If you hear them start talking, uh, they're going to be eventually funny about something, right? And one of those topics could be uh, what they're living for, uh, what they make much of in their hearts, what they're excited about, what, what, what life is all about for them at that little stage of life. Uh, one of the members of our church here, uh, one of the young ladies, has two little boys, uh, one of them who's four years old absolutely loves trains, I'm told. Everything always excited about trains. And the story comes to me that uh, uh, the mom and this little boy were in the car one day, and just out of the blue, he said, Mama, I have trains in my heart. <laughs> the mom said, do you really? Uh, how about Jesus? Do you have Jesus in your heart? And he thought for a moment, he said, no, just trains. Uh, one of the children of my wife's sister, when those kids were little, would uh, stand in front of the mirror, I'm told, from time to time and say in the most wonderful southern accent, my hair is my life. <laughs> As I was growing up, my parents told me that when I was really little, maybe three, four, five years of age, at a family picnic, I declared my reason for living. I said, I was born to eat watermelon. Just another little white kid in Alabama. That's all I was, you know, just loving watermelon. And I declared early, this is my goal in life, is to eat all the watermelon I can get. You know, the thing is, kids are so out there and honest with what they're living for and what, what their the life is all about, what they're making much of. They just don't hide it. But we as adults, we know some of the answers that are supposed to be. And so therefore, we sometimes have to go searching to find honestly find sort of the idols of our hearts that reveal our idolatrous self-love, right? We have to go searching by doing things like this. Kids will just come out and say it. We have to figure out what is it that I wake up every day thinking about? We need to ask ourselves this, what is it that I tend to obsess over? What is it that I just think about all the time? Or what is it that I just know that my emotional reaction in that part of my life seems to be inordinate and out of, out of kilter? The amount of anxiety I have about that, it's not really rational or logical. The amount of fear I have about that doesn't really make sense. Maybe there's something going on underneath. Or even the amount of excitement and joy. Well, what am I really, really proud of? When we go investigating that's the way we start finding out the things that we really make much of in our hearts and that we're sort of making the idols uh, of our hearts, if we're really honest. Now, there could be a lot of different options for those things, right? Uh, one could be uh, your family of origin and where you're from. My wife grew up in Mississippi, and uh, I think her parents' generation especially, if two people would meet each other, one of the first questions would be, now, who are your people? <laughs> And often people would respond with great pride. Well, I'm in the Tolliver family, or I'm in the Smith family, and there's a lot of pride about that. 
a number of years ago, my wife was talking with a lady here in Atlanta who had grown up in a southern town and in a prominent family of that southern town. And as this lady was talking with my wife, she said to my wife, without any sense of trying to be funny or humorous, ironic, and long before Anchorman came out, she said, back home, I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> and she so meant it. She really did. Maybe uh, what you make much of is not where you're from or your family of origin. Maybe uh, what you're making much of is who your friends are now, who you're hanging out with. It seems to me a little bit of the Instagram and Facebook thing is, look at who my friends are. Look who I'm hanging out with, right? So excited of who I know. Or maybe it's the experiences of life. Somebody told me the other day, and I'll have to agree, that this next generation of 20-somethings and teenagers are under tremendous pressure to have awesome experiences. I think that's true. A lot of you in that generation are focused on one great experience after another. It can be really tempting to just make much of your experiences. Now, now, something that my generation really brought to the front is making much of pleasurable experiences. Just pleasurable experiences. Not too long ago, CNN had a series of, of, uh, of specials on TV about the 60s. And being a baby boomer, I had to watch it. And in one of those episodes, it showed a, um, a, a TV reporter speaking into the camera and saying with a bit of mysticism, with amazement, he said, we are now seeing in our country and others an intense preoccupation with pleasure. The rules are now that there are no rules. Maybe that's what you make much of in your life. I want pleasurable experiences at all costs. One that I think a lot of the men here in North Atlanta wrestle with and some of the women too is this. Success, achievement, accomplishment. I will have to tell you if there is any one idol in my heart that, that raises its ugly head and competes for the lordship of Jesus in my life, this is it. This is what I can be tempted to make much of. Accomplishment, achievement, success. And I don't think I'm alone in this room. Maybe it's approval through those things, or maybe it's just the approval of certain people that I know life is worth living, what I will make much of and worry about and be anxious about and focus on and sacrifice for is to have the approval of these certain people. Or maybe it's just the security of a big bank account, a portfolio, a lot of creature comforts around you and being really proud about those creature comforts and how they look, that beautiful home or something else. Or maybe it's really different from those things. Maybe it's something that looks like it ought to be good. Maybe it's your religious achievements and performance. I'm real involved with church, I'm part of a great church, and that's awesome. But for you, it's making much of that. Or maybe it's your moral performance. I'm really a good person and I'm really proud of it. <laughs> what is it, if you're honest with yourself, what is it that you make much of? The truth of the matter is, every one of us, in some of these things more than others, we make much of these things and of ourselves. And the problem is, is when we do that, we're not in alignment with what the universe is all about. We're taking good things and turning them into ultimate things. We're taking things that have been given to us from God and making them into little gods. And when we do that, we're going to cause problems for ourselves and for others' people, and we're not going to be living the way God made us to live. In the New Testament, there's an example of someone who loved very, very differently from that. His name was John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist was sent to be the forerunner for Jesus. He was the guy that came first and said, the Messiah is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. He looked odd when he started his ministry. He, he wore camel's hair, and it wasn't like a camel hair jacket. It wasn't nice, okay? It was weird. He, he, he uh, ate locust and wild honey. And then he came preaching a message of repentance. And so many people were repenting that people said, this guy's got to be the Messiah. And he said to them over and over again, no, I'm not the Messiah. That's not me. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of the guy who's the Messiah. Well, Jesus comes upon the scene and starts to preach. And as Jesus' ministry gains popularity, some people come to John and say, are you jealous? Is this good or is this bad? And here's John's response in John chapter 3, John the Baptist's response in John's gospel. He said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from above. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. In other words, Jesus is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, me, John the Baptist says, who stands and hears his voice rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, I must decrease. John says, if you're a groomsman, the wedding day is not about you. It's about the bridegroom. It's about your friend. And here John the Baptist says, my life is not about me. My life is about Jesus, and he must increase, and I must decrease. My friends, that is what God calls us to do in our lives that we would make much of Jesus, that in our hearts, that he would increase, that we would decrease. The big idea of today's message is one I don't want you to miss. It's going to be right here on the screen. I want to read it aloud for you. I am called to make much of Jesus, and when I do, I'm aligned with the message of the gospel and the purpose of the universe. This is what biblical Christianity is all about. This alone will satisfy my heart. A guy named John Piper has made very famous this, uh, at least recently, made famous this phrase, making much of Jesus. But the phrase making much of Jesus or the reality behind it, the idea behind it, is as old as Genesis. It's as old as the Gospels. So I want you to not forget this. Would you read it aloud with me, please, so you don't forget it? I'm called to make much of Jesus. When I do, I'm aligned with the message of the Gospel and the purpose of the universe. This is what biblical Christianity is all about. This alone will satisfy my heart. Today, three truths about this truth that will drive it home. Number one is this. The Father has chosen to make much of Jesus. The Father has chosen to make much of Jesus. In the New Testament, there's the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul is writing to a bunch of Christians in a city called Philippi. He's telling them, you need to be humble toward each other. And he says, I want you to follow the example of Jesus. And he talks about the example of Jesus, how Jesus humbled himself first to become one of us. And then he humbled himself to the point of dying on the cross. And then Paul says in Philippians 2, 9, this is the result. He says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I want you to see something here. Eventually there is glory to God the Father and the Spirit. 
but that comes through the glory of the Son. So God's plan, God's choice, is to bring glory to himself, all three persons of the Godhead, but through the glory of the Son. That's the avenue by which it comes. And so the Father looks at this plan of how to create the earth, and then how to redeem sinners. And the Father makes a choice, and the Father's choice is to make the Son front and center. So the Father chooses to make much of Jesus. The second observation is simply this, that the Spirit makes much of Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit is to make much of Jesus. Before Jesus was betrayed, before Jesus was arrested, before Jesus was crucified, Jesus had one last dinner with his disciples, and he gave them one last sermon. That sermon is in John 14, 15, and 16. And in that sermon called the Upper Room Discourse, or the Upper Room Sermon, Jesus talks about how he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit is going to be the one called along beside you, the paraclete. He's the one who's going to strengthen you and comfort you and help you. He'll be me with you, so to speak. But then he says something very interesting about the Holy Spirit in John 16, 14. He says, he will glorify me. Because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. You hear what Jesus said there? The Holy Spirit will glorify me. If you're at home reading a book and you have a lamp over your shoulder that you're using to help you read that book, while you're reading the book, are you looking at the lamp or are you looking at the book? Is your attention on the lamp? Is your your attention on the book? Your attention is on the book, not on the lamp, right? Well, the Holy Spirit is like the lamp and the book is like Jesus, the living Word of God. And the role of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit is to put our focus on Jesus. So that's what he does. So the Father makes much of Jesus, and the Spirit makes much of Jesus. So guess what my third point is today? (laughs) My job, your job, is to make much of Jesus. I'm called to make much of Jesus. You're called to make much of Jesus. If you're made in the image of God, that's what God wants you to do. As many of you know, my, my, my primary role here in the church is to direct our church planting efforts. And our newest church planting initiative is down in Eastlake. Daryl Ford is the name of the pastor of that church. And recently he gave some prayer requests to some of us of how he could pray, how we could pray for him. And he asked, first of all, uh, us to give praise to God that they have a, a temporary place to meet for the first two or three months, I think, at the rec center in Eastlake. Secondly, he said, pray for me and my family that during this busy time we would love each other well. Thirdly, he asked us to pray for a man that he's meeting with regularly and sharing the gospel. And lastly, fourthly, he prayed this. He asked us to pray this. He said, pray that our church will make much of Jesus. Now, that sounds like a weird thing, Right? Don't all churches make much of Jesus? And the truth of the matter is, the answer is no. In fact, the reason Daryl asked that prayer is that the danger of American Christianity is Christless Christianity, crossless Christianity, a Christless faith and a crossless faith, Christless sermons and crossless sermons, Christless Christians, crossless Christians. Christless followers of Jesus? That doesn't make any sense, does it? Think about it. If someone is a follower of Jesus, how can they be a follower of Jesus if they never or very seldom make much of Jesus by what they say and in their hearts? 
So Daryl very rightly said, pray that our church will make much of Jesus. The Bible says that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. If your heart's full of something, you talk about it. If you're a little boy and you love trains, you talk about trains. If you're a little boy and you love watermelon, you talk about watermelon. If you're a grown man or woman and you love Jesus, that's going to come out of your mouth. The way you live life, the way you talk, it's going to be about Jesus. What a great example is the Apostle Paul, that, that apostle that was chosen a little bit late. He didn't follow Jesus when Jesus was on earth. He was picked out of being a rebel against Jesus and said, no, you're going to be my apostle to the Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul said things like this in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ. In Galatians 2, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In Philippians 3, he said, all those good things I did, all those religious performances of my past, I count those as rubbish so that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Now, I want you to notice, he wanted to know Christ and especially Christ in his death and resurrection. That's how we get to know him. And the gospel is the life, death, resurrection, and lordship of Jesus. And Paul says here, my life is all about Christ. In Paul's first letter to these people of Corinth that we're about to read from in a minute, in his first letter he said, I determined to know nothing when I was among you except Christ and him crucified. Now, does that mean he literally never talked about anything but Christ and the crucifixion? No. He told them about all kinds of things they needed to know. But whatever topic it was he talked about, he talked about that topic in light of Christ and the cross. That's what he meant, and that's what he did. He made much of Jesus, no matter the topic. Indeed, that's what God calls us to today. There's a main passage we're going to look at today, a 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We won't really won't spend very long there, but it's the main passage. Here Paul tells us how we are to make much of Jesus and why. Look with me, please. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 5. He says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. You see, folks like Randy or me or David, it's not about us. We are simply your servants for the sake of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. It's all about him. And if you're a follower of Jesus, your life is not about you. Your life is about Jesus. He calls you to be a servant of other people for Jesus' sake. And he's Lord and your servant. He continues in verse 6. This is what he says. He gives the why. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us what? To give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus. Now, I don't want you to miss that. The glory of God is displayed in the face of Jesus. Let me give you the analogy. It's like he says, the glory of God is so bright that it would be overwhelming to you, or it is hidden altogether and you don't perceive it. How did we come in touch with the glory of God? We've come in touch with the glory of God in Jesus. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, especially his life, death, resurrection, and lordship, but especially his death and resurrection. This is how we see the greatness of who God is. 
The avenue through which the Father is glorified, the avenue through which we know the glory of the Father is the glory of the Son. And when we see that glory, it all falls into place. He goes on to explain how this gets lived out. Look at verses 7 through 10. Paul says, for we have this treasure, that is, the treasure is the gospel, or Jesus himself, in jars of clay. And that's a description of who we are. We're like clay pots, he said. Nothing special about us. But inside the clay pot is the treasure himself, Jesus. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus, I think the resurrected life, may be revealed also in our bodies. You notice there, Jesus is front and center, his life, but especially his death and his resurrection. What Paul is saying right here is this. It is vitally important that we admit to ourselves that we are clay pots, that we're broken and are frail, and we are broken and frail. It is vitally important for us to admit to one another that we are clay pots, broken and frail. And it is vitally important that we admit to the world that we are clay pots and we are broken and frail. The world can see it anyway. But when we admit that that's all we are, and that the difference in us is the difference of Jesus living in us, then Jesus gets all the glory. It's about him. It's about making much of him. Not making much of the great clay pot, making much of the treasure inside. Last week, David preached a tremendous message about how we're supposed to echo the greatness and magnificence of God to the next generation. And I know he would agree with this, that where we see the magnificence and greatness of God is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where we see it. In this message, I owe a lot to the work of Dr. John Piper, especially his book called God is the Gospel. Let me read you what he says about this very theme, commenting on this very passage. It's a little bit of a long quote, but hang in there with me. Focus, pay attention. This is dynamite of what he says. Here's here's what he says. The gospel, and let's say, remind you, the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection and the worship of Jesus. The gospel is central not only in conversion, but also in the ongoing transformation of believers. Understanding the decisive purpose of the gospel as the revelation of the glory of Christ is the biblical key to Christian holiness. Not just getting into heaven, it's the key to holiness. That is, that our lives will be conformed to the law of God. The pathway to Christ's likeness is beholding the glory of the Lord. Beholding is becoming. We are transformed into the image of the Lord by means of fixing our attention on his glory. This is the way the Holy Spirit does his ongoing change in us. He does not change us directly. He changes us by enabling us to see the glory of Christ. This is crucial to understand. It shows how Christ exalting the Holy Spirit is. This is the way he works in evangelism, and this is the way he works in sanctification. And we're going to define that. The Spirit was sent to glorify the Son of God, so it is with sanctification. We are transformed into Christ's image. That's what sanctification is, that our character starts to look like his character by a steadfast seeing and savoring of the glory of Christ. I love that. Not physically seeing him, of course not, but in our mind's eye and our heart, 
We see him, so to speak, by eyes of faith through the scriptures, and we savor him. We love him. It's just like we sang in the, one of our courses a little bit ago earlier in this service. We will fix our eyes on you so that we can set our hearts on you. That's what it's saying right here. I will, through the scriptures, seek to see you so that I will then love you and savor your greatness and your love and your compassion. So he says, seeing and savoring the glory of Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit in changing us is not to work directly on our bad habits, but to make us admire Jesus Christ so much that sinful habits feel foreign and distasteful. I love that. What happens is that faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus, it comes by the work of the Holy Spirit. But then that faith in Jesus leads to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And that enables us to be obedient to him as we see the glory of Christ. Do you see here, my friends, how Christ-centered our lives are to be? Now, we've looked at these three truths. The Father makes much of Jesus. The Spirit makes much of Jesus. He calls us to make much of Jesus. Now let me give you three applications. Three truths today and three applications. How do we put this into practice in our lives? And here's the number one thing. Number one, make focus on Jesus and your repentance. You see, repentance from sin is not just trying to behave better. It's not just trying to be better and do better and act better. Repentance is relational. We make Jesus the reason we repent. We repent because he loves us and we love him. We make Jesus the direction of our repentance. We turn away from sin and we turn toward him. Repentance is relational. It's a focus on Jesus. I love the way Randy describes it. Repentance is turning away from sin back to Jesus to say, you alone can satisfy my heart. Forgive me for trying to find my satisfaction somewhere else. That's exactly right. Focus on Jesus in your repentance. This last uh, couple of weeks, I went to a prayer conference and Dr. John Smith, another pastor in our denomination, gave another great picture of repentance. He said repentance is like a super soaker water gun. He says, you put that thing under the water and you draw it back and to all at the same time, there's a displacement of water in the place of air. The gun is emptied of air, it's filled with water. And he says, repentance is emptying ourselves of ourselves that we can be filled with the fullness of Jesus. What a beautiful picture that is. That's great. Focus on Jesus and your repentance. Number two is this, make Jesus the hero of your obedience. Make Jesus the hero of your obedience. In other words, don't only trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, trust in Jesus for your obedience. It's Jesus who sends the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus who gives us the power of the resurrection. Jesus needs to be the hero of our obedience. See, every story has a hero. Who is the hero of your story when you do things right? (laughs) Who is the hero of your story when you actually follow Jesus in the way you live and behave and the attitudes of your heart? The hero of your story needs to be Jesus. That he gets the praise and he gets the glory for the transformation of your life. And here's the thing that's astounding, the thing that's very important for us to remember. That this means that obedience without faith in Jesus is disobedience. Obedience without love for Jesus is disobedience. And obedience without a heart for the glory of Jesus is really disobedience. 
It all comes back to that. So focus on Jesus in your repentance. Make Jesus the hero of your obedience. And then thirdly is this. Choose Jesus as the object of your highest affection and praise. You know, the world would have us think that what we love, we're just blown in one direction or another and have no control over it. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you can choose what you love. And the Bible tells us that we are to choose Jesus as the highest affection of our hearts and the highest praise of our lips and our hearts. To be a Christian is to say, Jesus, I love you. You are the greatest treasure of my life. There is nothing and no one more important to me than you. You are my defining reality. You're the one that makes all all the difference. It's to to say from our hearts like that old hymn, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Choose him to be your highest, the object of your highest affection and your highest praise. Sometimes preachers will say to one another, will remind each other, preach in such a way that's not that people say what a great preacher but preach in such a way that when you're through, people will say, what a great Savior. Let me encourage you also to live your life in such a way that people would not say, what a great person. Live your life in such a way that people would say, what a great Savior that person has. Because I know that he is the one that's made all the difference. Choose Jesus as the object of your highest affection and praise. Now, what is it that's going to help us keep this focus on Jesus? Let me be very honest with you. I've got this theology in my head, but I wrestle with it all the time and every day. I told you about how I can, I can wrestle with wanting accomplishment, achievement, and the things that go with it. And late yesterday afternoon, I laughed at myself that I was very certain to get a haircut and ask Morgan and what to wear so that I could come tell you about making much of Jesus, you know? Right? So we all wrestle with these things. We all battle them. What is it that we can do day by day that helps us keep our hearts on Jesus? And I'll tell you for me, the thing that has made most difference is to try to find every day a way of reading and thinking about the cross of Jesus. If every day I can intentionally seek out something in the scriptures or in a hymn or in music or in something else or just in my meditations, a remembering of the death of Jesus for me and of his resurrection to give me new life, I find my heart being drawn to Jesus. When I review what the gospel is all about, it helps me love Jesus supremely. I put in your bulletin today, or we put in your bulletin, a little bookmark. It's got a couple of prayers about the cross. The the prayers come from a book called The Valley of Vision. Let me ask you to find it and look for it there. And let me ask you to please don't throw away, but take it home. Now, for the 25 of you that actually use a, a book to read, you can use this bookmark, okay? If you have a physical Bible with pages, you could use this as a bookmark in your Bible or other books that you read. If, if not, tape it to your Kindle or your laptop or something. I don't know. Put it on your bathroom mirror. But what's helpful to me is to get this kind of theology into my heart every day. I want you to see... In this prayer, in this poem, the centrality of the cross. He says, O my Savior, the grace of the cross is the one I'm going to read. O my Savior, I thank you from the depths of my being for your wondrous grace and love in bearing my sin in your body on the tree. That is the cross. May your cross be to me 
As the tree that sweetens my bitter maras, as the rod that blossoms with life and beauty, and as the brazen serpent that calls forth the look of faith. He's alluding to three stories of the Old Testament. If you don't know them, no big deal. Next, he says, by the cross, crucify my every sin. I love that line. Kill my sins through the cross. Use it, the cross, to increase my intimacy with thyself. Make it, the cross, the ground of all my comfort, the liveliness of all my duties, the sum of all thy gospel promises, the comfort of all my afflictions, the vigor of my love, thankfulness, graces, the very essence of my religion. And by it, give me that rest without rest, the rest of ceaseless praise. Wow. It makes a huge difference to keep the cross front and center. Now, let's bring this back to everyday life. I almost entitled this sermon, An Honest Look in the Mirror. So let me close with some questions to help us take an honest look in the mirror. And here are the questions. Do we make much of Jesus in our families? Do we? The alternative is simply trying to get good behavior and to get our families to achieve a lot. The American Achievatron, we can do more than you. We can be better than you. Are we making much of Jesus in our families? Are we making much of Jesus in our work and with our money? The alternative is simply getting ahead and proving ourselves and being superior and, and chasing what I would call the damnable American dream of personal peace and influence. Are you making much of Jesus in your work and with your money? Are we making much of Jesus in our church? I know that our leaders are trying to lead us in that direction. In your participation in the life of the church, are you making much of Jesus? Or simply, are you making much of how you serve and how you give and what you do? Are you making much of Jesus in what you do and in what he is doing? You know, we live in a time of pastor celebrity. And I know that our pastor does not want this to be a pastor-centered church. He wants it to be a Christ-centered church. Yes, we need to be thankful for him and grateful for him and encourage him. But I know he wants us to build this thing about around Jesus. Are we Christ-centered and making much of Jesus in our devotional life? You know, it's possible to read the Bible every day and just use it to get more knowledge and feel more spiritual and try to manipulate God because, you know, I had a quiet time today. Don't you owe me something? Are we making much of Jesus in our devotionals? And are we making much of Jesus in our prayers? The alternative to making much of Jesus in our prayers is basically every prayer sort of boils down to, God, I'm not happy. Would you please change my circumstances so I'll be happy? But God calls us to make much of Jesus in our prayers. And he also, we're making much of Jesus in the meditations of our hearts and the words of our mouths. Either the words and thoughts are going to be all about us, or the words and thoughts are going to come back to the glory of Jesus. And the words and thoughts about us will be in relation to him. Perhaps if you struggle with these things as I do, this would be the prayer you need every day. And here it is. Lord Jesus, I want to want you. I need to need you. Draw me to yourself. Come to me when I'm unable or willing to come to you. Daily save me. You must increase. I must decrease. And I can't tell you how many days I have to pray this prayer. Lord, I want to want you more than I do right now. I need to need you. Please draw me to yourself because I'm struggling and I'm wrestling. But that's the prayer that takes us back to the cross. And that's the prayer that takes us back to Jesus. 
My friends, let me guarantee you, there is great joy and satisfaction in making much of Jesus. And I know that because that's why you were made. And that's why the universe exists. Lord, thank you very much for sending us such a wonderful Savior, such a great, great, great Savior. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. We ask you even now that you would come and be with us in this time of communion. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.